And thank you for coming out tonight, yeah. It's true, as Dr. Keithley said, a first-time visitor, I'm stunned as I walk around this beautiful campus, yeah. For the last uh, 15 years, and I say this voluntarily, this is not on a three-by-five card that Dr. Ashford or Dr. Keithley gave me to read, but I've heard for the last 15, maybe 20 years, really of exciting things that are going on at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I've heard it from afar. I'm not a Baptist. I repent for tonight, okay? All right, I'll be one of you for the next couple hours. I'm Orthodox, small o in my theology, so I'm one with you in that regard. Uh, so I am delighted to be here to be in this beautiful setting. I'm at the Outer Banks of North Carolina very often. I just came, I spent the weekend, um, believe it or not, on Hatteras Island surfing post Humberto, <laughs> post Dorian, was that the other one? Yes. Uh -huh. uh, when you are in the water a lot, you wait for the, uh, the September season is exciting because you wait for uh, storms, not to hit land, but to stay a couple hundred miles off. Yeah, so I literally drove here, not from my home in Chattanooga, where I live, but from Hatteras Island. Uh, and four hours is nothing, believe me. So I'm delighted to be here, I need to say. And I'm also delighted because of your interest in thinking about things that are very serious. Uh, I'm going to the essence of my work, I've spent most of my career in the university classroom, but also, like some of uh, my brethren here, uh, been wrestling with the issue of faith and public policy. Question, is Christian faith sturdy enough to hold up in the public arena? I was in chapel this morning. I heard a lot about evangelism, missions. I want to suggest that 99% of the church is called to the marketplace. I'll end on that note. I wanted to tease you a little bit. And in between, we're going to talk about important ethical issues, issues maybe with which most of us don't struggle on a daily basis. Someone must. And my argument is going to be that the church and thoughtful Christians need to reflect seriously on issues of war and peace and coercive force. Before we uh, begin, several things. First of all, I see uh, there was intended that a one-page handout would be in your lap. Do most of you have that? And if not, feel free to borrow from your neighbor, okay? And if you're not interested in that, feel free to roll it up, uh, smoke it. Uh, what else? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize. No, I thought there, I knew there was a covenant, but I thought tobacco would be inside the covenant. <laughs> hey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. I mean, the Dukes and the Reynolds, I mean, that's local, is it not? At least, yeah, that's what I, oh, I, is this being taped? I better be, be careful. So, uh, you know me already, Mike. All my, I've got three kids, and uh, they all say, you know, Dad, what your problem is? Your, your problem is you love having fun at other people's expense. And, you know, it's, it's true. I can't deny it. But that, that's neither here nor there. Okay. But so one thing, you should have a one-page handout. Second thing, I really look forward then to, usually the main event is not the talk. It's the Q&A. So after, uh, after I'm done and after... Uh, Dr. Ashford speaks, uh, and 
Dr. Heimbach will join us, and hopefully you will be free to have at us and to ask difficult questions. Is that okay? Is that fair? All right, let's begin. In wrestling with the ethics of war and peace, we're wrestling with, I don't need to tell you, very difficult issues, issues of life and death, issues of welfare of nations, uh, that's a yawner, and public, pa public policy matters really of enormous import. At the same time, I want to argue these are perennial issues, and therefore issues on which thoughtful Christians in the church, in my view, not just politicians, not just military strategists need to be responsibly informed. When I was informed of the uh, invitation here, I was a little stunned. Why? Because seminary education, at least stereotypically, is not known to be thinking about uh, not just issues of uh, ethical import, but issues of war and peace. When and where seminary education does take up the ethics of war and peace, and this is typically in a mainline context, I would argue, and I'm a product of seminary too, so I speak, I think, internally as well as ex externally, normally that would be done in a mainline context. And my guess is the trajectory of that conversation would be something like this. It would be a thin staple or a thin gruel of peace studies with an accent on Jesus what shall we call it, uh, countercultural radicalism, right? With the result inevitably being that uh, we need to criticize American imperialism and we need to condemn America's so-called war machine. That would be my guess of what a typical seminary divinity school discussion of war and peace would lead to. I'm overstating it. Forgive me for that uh, in order to make the point. This tendency notwithstanding, we may be encouraged, however, by the fact that we are not the first to think about these serious issues. We are not Christians of all ages, bishops and laypersons, monks and magistrates, Catholics and Protestants have wrestled with them, and they've done that for centuries. They've agonized over them. And let me reiterate, and I say this not just to kiss up but uh, you were to be applauded here at Southeastern because of your interest in these issues and because of faculty who are willing to lead the way. If the first challenge then is to train the new generation to think ethically, then a second challenge that confronts us is the state of the cultural climate. Wow, where shall we begin there? <laughs> In the West, we live in what may be called a post-consensus cultural climate wherein we believe nothing, we affirm nothing other than diversity, so-called. We're indifferent to moral reality, and we're quite obstinate in that indifference. To make moral judgments in the public arena today is to be castigated as hate-filled, bigoted, intolerant and judgmental, is it not? I mean, just try it. That's the challenge. And I think that's pervasively in the West. That's the second great challenge. I'm going to suggest the third, and it's more in-house. In addition to the challenge of teaching the next generation, and in, in addition to the challenge of the cultural climate, a third challenge is the abiding appeal of pacifist sentiment. One 
that has both secular and religious expressions. My focus this evening, for obvious reasons, will be its religious form, which always seems to represent itself as the authentic expression of true radical faith. And while the pacifist voice is not likely dominant, and I'm going to unpack that in a bit, is probably not dominant at a place like Southeastern. It is dominant in most divinity schools and seminaries. And not, mind you, not necessarily in mainline contexts, where, of course, there, uh, it's, uh, pacifism is universally held. So my argument tonight is going to presuppose something very important. It will presuppose the importance of being in continuity with the wider historic Christian tradition in order that we, that in order that we not be held captive by various social, political, or theological currents. Yes, we need to think with the wider tradition. May we say that? I'm going to assert that. That's part of my uh, presupposition. And what's more, I want to presuppose that the business of ethics may not be severed from theology proper. Ethics is wholly dependent on theological foundations, and where ethics is severed from theology proper and serious, ethical, uh, serious theological reflection, inevitably it degenerates into social activism. I'm not ancient of days, I'm old, but I'm old enough to see that tendency. Brothers and sisters, we have enough of social justice warriors in the culture today. But ethics needs to be rooted in theological foundations. So with that uh, introduction, perhaps then we may proceed and consider what the logical possibilities are for construing coercive force. And if you'll permit me, I'm going to move in and out of domestic and international affairs here, and I hope that won't put anybody off. <clears throat> I intentionally will be using the phrase coercive force, not just war, since what applies to military intervention and international affairs applies as well to criminal justice in the domestic context. Why? Because the canons of justice cannot be fluid. I heard that over the dinner table, I think, in one form or fashion a while ago. But if justice is truly just, it will not be fluid. It must be universal. What do we say? What's our language when uh, people perceive that the rich are profiting to the expense of the poor or the justice is not being meted out correctly? We use the language of that's a, that's a miscarriage of justice, right? Yeah. Or that's a travesty of justice. What are we suggesting? We're suggesting that justice is the same for all. <laughs> it can't be different for you than it is for you, than it is for you, than it is for you. Then it's not justice. But that's not just an American definition. That's not just a Christian insight. Uh, that is universal. That's the, that's the import, that's the application of natural law. Uh, the, father, the supposed father of international law, Hugo Grotius, went out of his way to make that point that justice cannot be fluid, that it would look, it would manifest the same sort of characteristics domestically as it would in international affairs. And I'd like to argue this evening that this, this way of arguing about war and peace, that is, focusing focusing on the universal character of justice and its non-fluidity allows us, allows our viewpoint to hold up in public debate. It's my argument, uh, based on, 
on limited experience more recently, that that kind of argument that is arguing on the basis of justice universal, universality and non-fluidity will help us in diverse contexts. Uh, I've experienced this in the last year as different as, op as uh, open forum debate at, on university campuses to the U.S. Army's command and general staff college in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where mid-level uh, Army officers, that is uh, generally majors and lieutenant colonels, are being uh, uh, trained, even to uh, the U.S. State Department this past spring, uh, where foreign service officers and diplomats were brought together for this very discussion. Warfare can be examined according to three possible logical positions. The first holds that war and coercive force are always justifiable morally or legally. Resort to violence, whether in its secular form, we'll call that uh, political realism, the German term is realpolitik, or simply put militarism, or its religious expression, call it jihad, uh, holy war, even God and country, way of thinking requires no moral justification, no moral restraints beyond political expediency or the command of God need be applied. At the opposite end of the uh, spectrum of force uh, from militarism or holy war stands the ideological pacifist for whom war and coercive force are always, always, always unjust and can never serve just moral or moral purposes. Some years ago, the celebrated uh, Anabaptist theologian, John Howard Yoder, who no longer lives, but who was prolific, uh, wrote a book with a somewhat curious title, Nevertheless, the Varieties and Weaknesses of Religious Pacifism. Therein, Yoder attempted to distinguish between, I think it was something like 19 or 20 or 21 varieties of pacifism. To which I would reply, that attempt re represents either a failure or an unwillingness to acknowledge the pacifist starting point. In its pure form, and if it's honest, ideological pacifism must acknowledge that you simply cannot have some wars that might be just. You cannot have it both ways, as many mainline denominations and even the American uh, Catholic bishops did in the 1980s at the height of the Cold War. They tried that tack to have it both ways. The truth is you'll never get a nuclear pacifist or a qualified pacifist or a just peacemaker. Just peacemaking, some of you may recall, was a supposed third way that was articulated by a, uh, another seminary professor in the 1990s, uh, sem the seminary of which will not be named. But you will, never, you will never get a qualified or what a friend calls crypto-pacifist to ever identify one single war that has ever been just, not one. And guess what? There's a reason for that, part two. My personal interest, in case you're wondering, <laughs> in the pacifist sentiment is by no means detached. I grew up in an Anabaptist tradition. I don't know if you have many Anabaptists in North Carolina, but I imagine you have some. I just saw a couple on the beach, strangely, uh, over the weekend on Hatteras Island. To its great credit, pacifism is sensitive to the violent tendencies that permeate American society, and I'd like to pay 
do homage to that part of the tradition because of what it brings to uh, civil discourse. And having grown up in it, I can speak to its strengths, and, uh, which are, I think are multiple and compelling. In addition, many pacifists recognize diverse and often creative avenues for social service. Religious pacifism also, to its credit, seems to take seriously the commandment to love the neighbor or to take uh, Christian discipleship seriously. Further, religious pacifism is keenly sensitive to the, the distortions that attend faith when there is an uncritical view of the state. Yes, always a temptation. Uh, say, a God and country mentality. And by the way, that's not simply an American or a North American phenomenon. That's a tendency that occurs throughout the history of the church. But the weaknesses of the pacifist perspective are multiple and require a measure of critique. In its refusal to resist evil through action directly, pacifism in practice bestows upon evil and tyranny an advantage in the present life. This, of course, was Reinhold Niebuhr's criticism of his mainline pacifist friends in his own day during the Second World War. He somewhat caustically mocked them by noting that if only Christians had loved the world a little bit more, Hitler would not have annexed this country and that and cause such havoc. As Niebuhr recognized, however, when evil reaches critical mass, Human beings must respond, and to fail to do so is ethically untenable. Another weakness of the pacifist position is its dualism. Some might even call it a schizophrenia. Let me qualify that in terms of understanding politics and governing authorities. For John Howard Yoder, whom I just uh, cited a minute ago in his writings, not Romans 13, but Revelation 13 is the indicative, the normative text describing the powers that be, that is the apocalyptic beast. And for most religious pacifists, government is either inherently evil or necessarily evil. Do you hear those? I hear that sort of language often, an inherent or a necessary evil. And I'd like to say, uh, uh, hopefully uh, offer an answer that's rooted squarely in the Christian moral tradition, uh, that position is unscriptural. And it's illogical, too. For then we shall need to admit, if that is true, if governing, governing a power and authorities are an, even at least a necessary evil, then we'll have to admit that all coercive power, local, state, national, and international, is evil, including, mind you, every, even the authority of school boards, town councils, <laughs> PTAs, any political office, all law enforcement, period. As I'm talking, I'm reminded of a debate I had uh, in Boston several years ago with two Mennonite theologians, and I asked them, are you personally opposed to uh, armed guards in Brinks trucks <laughs> driving up, picking up, protecting, defending, and transferring your life savings from ABC savings and loans to XYZ, guess what? I did not get much of a reaction. Yet another weakness of pacifism is that it overestimates the effectiveness of nonviolence, even while at the same time it 
underestimates or even to perhaps denying the fact that morally guided force can issue out of love. Do you believe that? Can morally guided force issue, can coercive force issue out of love? In the end, for example, let me, let me illustrate. Gandhi, the celebrated pacifist of India, several generations removed, but beloved the world over today, had no solution for the extermination of six million European Jews by the Nazis during the Second World War. All Gandhi could do, and this was George Orwell's criticism, of course, Orwell, British journalist working in India during this time, during these years, criticized Gandhi for this very thing. All Gandhi could do was suggest that European Jews commit suicide and thereby awaken the conscience of the nations to their plight. Ladies and gentlemen, that solution is neither just nor loving, nor it is, is it even remotely Christian. Precisely how pacifism is able to counter or negate totalitarianism has never really been demonstrated, as Michael Walzer has forcefully argued. Coercive force will always be necessary this side of the eschaton for the simple reason that in a fallen world, the very goods of human flourishing need protecting. As moral philosopher Elizabeth Anscombe, who was uh, uh, a contemporary to C.S. Lewis, observed, pacifism makes the world unsafe for everybody. And lest you think I'm really throwing casting stones here at glass houses, uh, my father-in-law, uh, a German, he's not alive anymore, served all five years of the Second World War working for the German railroad, the Bundesbahn. Guess where he spent all five years of the Second World War? In Poland. And guess what his job was all five years in Poland working for the German railroad? He was a railroad car switcher. Now, I, you don't need to know much history, and you don't need much imagination to wonder what it was that Papa saw. I can only stand here and tell you that having married into recent German history and culture, I have more than passing interest in the efficacy of pacifism and what it can accomplish in the face of evil. By the way, that was an observation. It was not meant to be a criticism. It was meant to be an observation. Pacifism, furthermore, is deficient at the theological level and on several fronts. Let me simply identify them. One, it fails to reconcile two important features of the divine nature. God as, yes, the crucified one, but God also as the divine warrior. Yoder's famous argument in the politics of Jesus, many of you have probably read that, was that we follow the lamb in his nonviolent example. Boy, that sounds Christ-like, right? That sounds radical, yes? To which I respond, well, yes, we do follow Christ's example in some ways without confusing his messiahship and his redemption of the world with our political and earthly responsibilities. May we make that not-so-subtle distinction. As Augustine properly argued, we have two citizenships. Of course, this is part of his city of God. 
city of God, city of man. And simply because, yes, we have ultimate allegiances to the one city does not mean that our allegiances, that our citizenship to the city of man are insignificant. Related theological problem is that pacifism creates a non-existent divide or dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. Here we go again, between monk and magistrate, between church and society, through its emphasis on abstaining from worldly involvement. Consequently, whether it's witting or unwitting, pacifism contributes to Christians' withdrawal from the world, I'm afraid. And to this day, you will find pacifists, Anabaptists, I'm thinking of people on my father's side of the family, to this day, not just in the 16th century when the Radical Reformation emerged, today yet you will find pacifists and Anabaptists in particular not engaged in particular vocations or forms of public and civil service. For example, you won't find them as lawyers, economists, oh, bankers, that's interesting, policy analysts, oh, government employees, even IT personnel, fully aside from military service and law enforcement, which are uh, uh, out of bounds. Isn't that interesting? Yet another theological flaw of pacifism is its misreading of church history, arguing that the early church until Constantine was uniformly pacifist and nonviolent, which, by the way, it was not. It was a mix. The early patristic era has been shown by serious scholarship to be a mix. Boy, I wish we had time to unpack that. And maybe we can in the question and answer. Then, subsequently, it reads all of church history through the nonviolent lens, arguing that after 12 centuries of compromise by Christians with the church and state being in bed with one another, the breakthrough came in the 16th century through the Radical Reformation. In addition to the misreading of, of church history, pacifism also misreads the New Testament and the so-called Sermon on the Mount. I'm about to turn the corner and spend a minute or two talking about uh, a particular reading of the Sermon on the Mount that has fueled pacifist sentiment. Final flaw of pacifism that I'd like to identify this evening is that this. In believing that all killing is immoral, it fails to distinguish between homicide and murder a distinction recognized by scripture, as well as church tradition, as well as the natural law. The sixth commandment applies to the killing of innocents, not moral retribution against those who do evil. One need only recall, for example, do you recall the cities of refuge in the Old Testament, six of which I think were scattered throughout Israel of old. What was their purpose? to distinguish between involuntary manslaughter and murder. Part three. We now turn to an overview of the third and mediating position, a position that's going to be amplified further by Dr. Ashford and his comments in a little a bit. And uh, so while he'll be giving, he'll be filling in color, so to speak, I'm going to speak in broader moral philosophical terms uh, in describing the just war tradition. As ethicist Paul Ramsey noted, it's more accurate to speak of the idea of justified rather than just war. Are you with me? Why? Because no war has ever been nor will ever be perfectly just. Justified war as opposed to just war. 
Why? Justice is a relative entity. On this side of the eschaton, we pursue justice imperfectly. But, ladies and gentlemen, just because our, our efforts are imperfect doesn't mean that we give up on working for justice, does it? <laughs> In the words of political ethicist Jean Elstein, just war is a, and these are her words, not mine, is a way of thinking that refuses to separate politics and ethics. I like that description. In the words of Ramsey, the tradition of just war is an understanding of political responsibility that's rooted in neighbor regarding love. I think I like that description as well. And I intentionally refer to the tradition of just war and not to just war theory. Why? What is a tradition? From the Latin traditio, literally a handing down, a handing on, think baton. That implies that a cumulative wisdom is there in its development and its refinement, accruing over time. As a tradition, just war has been supremely eclectic in character. It has been developed in the domains of theology, philosophy, politics, international law, military strategy. The great value of the tradition is that supplies, it supplies, let, let us use the illustration of a map, a map to describe the complexities as well as the paradigmatic attempts to work through those complexities of war and peace. And I'm sorry to say, but to the extent that the average American citizen is familiar with the just war tradition, he or she is all too prone to view it as some sort of, yes, theory, or some sort of checklist, if not an outmoded vestige of our past, or something rendered obsolete by international law. Now I'd like to turn the corner here and look at the basic I guess you could say moral philosophical assumptions of just war thinking, which very often, I'm sorry to say, are ignored or forgotten by commentators and writers. So for example, stay with me, uh, buckle in, that good and evil are part of human nature and that responsible public policy takes this reality into account. Since a state or regime can do intolerable things to its citizens, things that must, not be tolerated. Also, the tradition assumes that justice without force is a myth. Is there something within you that doesn't like what I just said? Justice without force is mythical. Why? Because there will always exist evil persons, and evil persons must be hindered for the very goods of human flourishing to be protected. Society without coercive powers is an impossibility, as I suggested a minute or so ago, whether locally, nationally, or internationally. And if coercive powers belong to governing authorities, they cannot simultaneously be legitimate in domestic affairs, say with police and law enforcement, but be illegitimate in international affairs, if human nature is human nature. Also, the tradition in its starting point distinguishes between a presumption against war or coercive force and a presumption against injustice. Why the distinction? A presumption against war as opposed to a presumption against justice, injustice. The just war tradition presumes the latter. Why? The difference between the just war position and the pacifist is that coercive force 
is neutral and can be used either for good or for ill. Further, tr the tradition acknowledges that war and peace are not two incommensurate, separate, unrelated worlds that have nothing to do with one another or which have different rules. No. The tradition also acknowledges that peace can be unjust. <laughs> Just think mafia or piracy <laughs> or terrorism, all of which require an orbit of peace in which to operate, right? So justice must order peace for it to be legitimate. Peace may be unjust and therefore illegitimate. The tradition further insists on a qualitative moral difference between violence and force. Um, some of you are thinking, well, Dr. Charles, you're splitting, you're straining gnats here, you're splitting hairs. Force and violence, and here, this is not original, I'm going to simply cite Roman Catholic theologian John Courtney Murray, who defined force as that execution of power which upholds the realms of law and politics with violence being that measure of force which undermines or destroys the realm of law or politics. I think that distinction is worthy of, of uh, keeping. Further, the tradition insists that a moral symmetry exists between military ends and means. Dr. Asher will distinguish between jus ad bellum, that is, should we intervene or not, and jus in bello, how to execute justice, and it's being carried out. Ends and means are related based on the justice of a cause and the right intention that must govern both, both ends and means. Someone has said, practically speaking, the means are the end in the making. I think I, I, think I agree with that. Also, the tradition understands that technology and strategy, some of you have strong reactions to or questions about the use of certain modes of technology. The tradition has no inherent bias against technology or strategy per se. That is to say, it depends on the user, the intention. Also, as more recent Just War Thinking has shown, the same principles of justice that inform on whether or not we should intervene and how should we proceed in the intervention also should inform in a third area. Jus post bellum, dust off your Latin from high school, okay. In other words, the same justice that informs should we, should we not, how should we perceive, it seems to me, logically, morally, must guide us in terms of what does justice require in the aftermath of conflict. Now that requires insight, doesn't it? It requires reflection. But it seems to me it can't be separated. And as, as our experience in the last, say, 15, 18 years has demonstrated, a lot of attention needs to be devoted to that. Final assumption of the tradition is that this, is this. Even when moral judgment can be clouded, yes, or violated in war, this potential itself does not render war or coercive force unjustifiable. Part four, because of the abiding appeal of religious pacifism and pacifists grounding their convictions in a purported nonviolent love ethic of Jesus based on a certain reading of the Sermon on the Mount, seems to me their exegesis of the sermon invites scrutiny. 
Peacemaking. Okay, blessed are the peacemakers, Matthew 5, 9. Yes, peacemaking appears here in Matthew's gospel. How? What's the context? It's part of the catalog of virtues, may we call it. Uh, Poverty of spirit, humility, the ability to mourn with others. And it's the collective witness of the New Testament that peace is present only in the context of right relations. That is to say, right relations must be justly ordered. For this reason, Augustine accentuates the need for a justly ordered peace, what he called a tranquilitas ordinus. Dust off your Latin one more time. Thomas Aquinas agrees with that, saying that peace is not a virtue, but the fruit of virtue. Oh, is he splitting hairs, perhaps? Peace is not a virtue, it's the fruit of virtue. Again, remember, peace can be fundamentally unjust, as we noted a minute ago. And people as diverse as Aquinas, Augustine, and Grotius all agree, we go to war only for the goal of establishing peace. And in a theological context, such as a seminary here, I think it's worth pointing out that the Old Testament prophetic images of peace, right, uh, instruments of war being turned into instruments of agriculture, right, uh, pruning hooks, plowshares, spears to pruning hooks, nation not learning war anymore. How about this one? Lamb lying down with a lion, you know, child playing with the cobra, right, leopard and the uh, goat, what have you. These images depict what? That's right, the eschaton, not the present age. And on this point, Luther, I think, had it right. For he said, if the lion and the lamb are expected to be lying down together in this age, then the lamb will need constant replacing. (laughs) Indeed. Brothers and sisters, that's good theology, it seems to me. (laughs) Indeed, it will. So the pacifist understanding of peace seems to me needs severe adjustment. But doesn't Christian faith require that we love and forgive our enemies? The uh, average pacifist will demand. Here we find that pacifism fails to make distinctions between personal attitudes, that is to say, issues of the heart, and public policy. And in failing to make that distinction, then, The typical pacifist reading of the Sermon on the Mount renders it a public policy prescription, which I'd like to argue is both theologically and exegetically untenable. Consider, for example, Jesus' command to love the enemy. You feel free to cough up the text from Matthew 5, 43 and 4. The context of that statement is one of Jesus, I think he gives six you have heard that it's been said, but I tell you qualifications, right? He does, there are six case illustrations in Matthew 5, right, where he's clarifying the moral law. And here is one such. Jesus is not setting aside Old Testament law. He's setting aside contemporary rabbinic distortions or understandings of the law. First of all, nowhere in the Old Testament is it taught to hate the enemy. You have heard, hate your enemy and That's not Old Testament teaching, hate your enemy. Second, the context here is not one of international relations, but personal relations. Notice the language, those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Third, as Augustine observed, it's the loving thing to do to hold people accountable for their actions and prevent criminal activity. Do you believe that? Oh, well, that was easy to say. 
It's the loving thing for the criminal to be intercepted, interdicted, prevented. Is that good theology? It's the loving thing also for society, which is watching. Let me add one more layer. It's the loving thing for the potential criminal, the potential offender, so it has a pedagogical function, so that he or she might learn. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the loving thing to do, it seems to me. Now, let me for a moment just make a turn and make love's application to just war thinking. Recall one of the three primary moral criteria of jus ad bellum, whether or not to go to war. I refer here to right intention. Okay, Aquinas classically identified three, proper authority, right intention, just cause. The intention of charity not only can guide coercive force, it should guide it. Can it guide it? Can it be guided by charity? One under way of understanding the right intention maybe can be expressed through the, the so-called golden rule. What's the golden rule? You know what it is. Treat others as you would want to be treated yourself, right? What's the re reverse corollary? Do not treat others. Do not do to others as you would not want done to you. I'm going to suggest yet a third, a negative corollary to golden rule that applies in the context of, of uh, humanitarian intervention. Don't allow to be done to other nations or another people group what you would not want done to your own. Right intention, golden rule. Hence, love can guide just and moral application of coercive force. And guess what? Policemen and law enforcement officers do this every day in their work, perhaps without knowing that they are applying right intention <laughs> or golden rule ethics. Sad, I'm sad to say that many Christians end up divorcing Charity and justice. We end up divorcing love from justice. And when we do that, it results in an ethical disaster. I'm about ready to close, but before I do close, I wanted to offer a final word on retaliation, which is also a concern as demonstrated by the Sermon on the Mount. It's a concern that many pacifists raise. And here, of course, uh, the pacifist is citing Matthew 5, 38 through 42, well-known verses. Several things need to be said about this <clears throat> because it's often assumed that retaliation is counter to Jesus' teaching. First, it's typically assumed that Jesus is setting aside the lex talionis. Okay. This is not the case. That's not what Jesus is doing. The law of the talion, as it turns out in Jesus' day, was being misused to exact unjust punishment or penalty between individuals. In its proper application, the lex talionis established both upper and lower limits of punishment, which, by the way, is a universal feature of justice. Look, we do not cut off the hands of children who steal cookies, right? But neither should we be slapping the back of wrists of murderers and rapists. In just war language, that would be disproportionate, would it not? Justice must be proportionate. To the offense. Sorry about that, Bruce. I know that was a stinger. Second item to be, and he's a softy, to be observed in Matthew 5, 38 and following is context. I hope you have the text with you, and if don't, that's okay. What's the context? It's encountering an abusive person 
As well, note as well, Jesus' means of illustrating the context. He uses four illustrations, all of which are personal. What are they? We've heard them a thousand times. Turning the other cheek, giving the cloak when the coat was asked, or the tunic when the cloak was asked, right? Going the extra mile, right? We don't have time to unpack them. Or giving or lending to anyone who asks. Look, common sense and parenthood will tell you you cannot universalize literally those four things. So that obviously is not what Jesus is getting at. All of these concern what? Personal injury, personal relations with abuse of people, all, have, all deal with matters of the heart, all have their application in personal dealings. They, this parallels, should we say, Romans 12, the end of Romans 12, not taking justice into your own hands, as opposed to Romans 13, where justice is placed in the hand of the magistrate. Thirdly, it's imperative that we distinguish between retribution and revenge. Stay with me here. I'm going to nitpick just a tad bit. A common objection both in foreign policy and in domestic affairs, in criminal justice in particular, is that justice as retribution is often a pretext for vengeance. How might we respond? Well, the Christian world tradition distinguishes the retributive act from revenge. That is to say, vindication from, may we call it, vindictiveness in important and unmistakable ways. At the most basic level, it understands punishment or retribution to be established by divine agency. God requires, God requires that in the temporal sphere. Augustine, in a letter to a friend, Marcellinus, who happened to be a Roman official in Carthage, a believer who was wrestling with, can I reconcile my Christian faith with political responsibilities of my office, was confused because other Christians were telling him on the basis of these verses in Matthew 5, 38 through 42, no, faith and political responsibilities are not compatible. Hmm. To which Augustine responds, it depends on right intent and inner dispositions. And he counsels Marcellinus that social welfare requires what he calls benevolent harshness. <laughs> That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? That's his. Social welfare requires benevolent harshness. Ah, so is it possible? Yes, he's saying it is possible that charity can apply coercive force with right intention. Now, I'm reading your minds, and I know what many of you are asking, and so I'll answer that. What are specific ways in which retribution and revenge differ? Let me just cite a couple here, rat-a-tat-tat. While revenge strikes out at a real or perceived wrong, retribution speaks to an objective wrong. All right? Are you with me? Whereas revenge is wild and not subject to limitations, Retribution has both, as I suggested a minute ago, upper and lower limits. While revenge represents what we could call a lust for punishment, retribution has as its goal a greater social good, and it takes no pleasure in punishment. And whereas revenge, because of its retaliatory mode, targets both, both offending party as well as anyone perceived to be akin as terrorists do, for example. 
Retribution is both targeted as well as impersonal, which is why Lady Justice is depicted how? Exactly. Oh. The pacifist argument against retaliation then fails to make the critical distinction between revenge and retribution, which, by the way, is the basis for a criminal justice system. By the pacifist rationale, even the Nuremberg trials following World War II were wrongheaded. Why? Because Nazi war crimes, indeed any war crimes against humanity, simply cannot be punished. And by that logic, ladies and gentlemen, one person's torture simply becomes another person's good time. Retributive justice, then, is a moral necessity for a civilized culture. And thereby, we respond both to victims who have been traumatized as, by evil as well as to society, which has been scandalized by evil. And we respond to the actual perpetrators themselves. Well, I need to conclude. Uh, a world without justice, a world without coercive, morally guided coercive force is hell. It will always be necessary on this side of the eschaton as an instrument of restraining evil. And I do conclude. The wisdom of the just war tradition, which is part of a 2,000-year-old, can we call it conversation in our own cultural heritage, sometimes on tragic occasions asks us, prods us to intervene on behalf of the suffering, the oppressed, in, who are being traumatized. Sometimes, though, often the wisdom of the tradition prevents, that's the wisdom of a collective tradition, prevents us, but that wisdom has to be sought and discerned. There's no cookie-cutter application. One size does not fit all. What worked in Iraq may not work in California. Okay. My, my argument, well, I mean, I like visiting the People's Republic of California. Don't get me wrong. You know. But well, my argument this evening is not, if you're hearing it, it's not that the, the U.S. should be the policeman for the world. No, that's not my argument tonight. That would be both immoral and impossible. But I will argue this. There are certain realities that must govern moral action. And there are certain realities that attend our influence in the world. That's an issue of stewardship, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and I read it somewhere, I think, in the New Testament, to whom much is given, much will be required. Let me tell you, that's as true of individuals as it is true of nations and people groups. To whom much is given, much is required. Like it or not, and I'm not standing here saying, boy, I like that, let's go, cowboy. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not the... To whom much has been given, much will be required. This principle of stewardship, stewarding, stewarding, stewarding is as true as the law of gravity. We're stewards of our influence, and that cuts both ways. The wisdom of the just war tradition, it chastens us, cautions us, and on occasion it might prod us to say, we must use because of right intention, charity, based on the image of God, we must protect the traumatized. 
those who have suffered from traumatic evil. I'm going to end on the note of vocation, and I realize that, that it's a dangerous point to bring up, especially in the seminary context, because most of you either are presently in pastoral work or you're headed <coughs> into pastoral work, right? Uh, and that'll mean that you'll need, though, to train members. And guess where 99% of you, your congregations are called? To the marketplace, not to pastoral ministry. And I heard a lot about the mission field this morning. I went to the chapel. Hey, praise the Lord for world missions. Praise the Lord for mission fields. I'd like to suggest that uh, the marketplace is also our mission. And 99% of our parishioners are called to the marketplace. Let me just say this. Not just Catholics, but Protestant evangelicals, in my view, have done a less than admirable job of collapsing the sacred-secular dichotomy that I mentioned earlier tonight, which has influenced the church since time immemorial. The truth is all of creation is sacred. Do you believe that? All of creation is sacred. It all belongs to the Creator. If that be true, I'd like to suggest an experiment for those of you who are heading into pastoral responsibility. You know, we have these sending out these commissioning services for <clears throat> so-called uh, missionaries, right? How about this? How about a commissioning service for uh, lawyers, policy analysts, diplomats, educators, psychologists, IT, techies, how about a commissioning service for social workers? How about a commissioning service for government employees, for crying out loud? Do you see what I'm getting at? Maybe I'm, now maybe I'm about to get stoned. I'm not sure here. That, it seems to me, if we had that kind of commissioning service would show that we understand the idea of vocation and the church's mission in the world. That we understand that most people are called to the marketplace. And this is every bit as sacred and noble as to the pastorate or church work. What about political careers or policy analysis or government service or military service or diplomacy? Gee, when I read the biblical stories of, say, Joseph, Daniel and his friends, Esther and others, I get the impression that those callings are pretty darn significant and high and noble and calling. Well, I better stop before I do get stoned. Finally, I hope that my comments tonight, uh, this evening, have in them you sense the importance of the theological enterprise. And by that, I don't mean in an elitist sense, but very practically. Uh, to repeat what was said earlier, the business of ethics may not be separated from theology proper. Ethics is wholly dependent on theological foundations, and where ethics is separated from serious ethical reflection, inevitably it becomes a little more than social activism. Given the topic for this evening, the wisdom of the just war tradition, I close with this ancient Near Eastern proverbial wisdom as it points to the need for rescuing those who have been traumatized by social political evil and who stand in dire need. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue 
those who are taken away to death. Hold back those who are being led to the slaughter. If you say, we didn't know this, does not he who knows the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay according to his work? That from Proverbs 24. May the Lord bless and keep you and use you in the marketplace. Thank you very much.